0: I used to get a little anxious with non-uniform days at school. I was anxious because, well, what if I got it wrong? What if it's not today and I'm the only kid who shows up wearing the wrong thing? Uh, We hate sticking out. It's really hard uh, to be different. Uh, Living faithfully for Jesus means being different. And often we stand out and we feel the pressure for this. We might feel the subtle pressure to conform, to be like everyone else. Sometimes there's direct pressure, people mocking or laws or policies that go against God's will. It can be hard to live differently, to live faithfully for Jesus, can't it? This is the reality God's people around the world and throughout history have dealt with. And today's passage is about the difference Jesus makes in two practical ways, how knowing Jesus impacts our day-to-day life. Uh, Today's passage is an encouragement to Christians to keep living for Jesus no matter the pressure. Uh, This passage encourages us to live for Jesus in our most intimate behaviour and our most public behaviour. Now, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he's full of encouragement You heard that, didn't you, as we we went through? This is a letter written to baby Christians who are faithfully living for Jesus. It's not like the letter written to the believers in Corinth. Those letters are full of hard words and rebuke. The message for the Thessalonians is you're going in the right direction, so keep going. Don't collapse under pressure. Don't give up before you make it to the finish line. So let's listen from verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask and ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Like the earliest Christians, sometimes we need a hard word, a firm rebuke. Sometimes, generally more often, we need to hear, keep going. And and we need this encouragement very much when it comes to living for Jesus sexually, which is what Paul addresses next. Our culture is very confused about sex. On the right hand, we're rightly disgusted when sports stars or Hollywood A-listers use their celebrity to take advantage of people. On the other hand, uh, newspapers think the lives of the stars of so-called adult websites is newsworthy especially if it means printing, revealing photos or salacious details. On the one hand, influencers on social media rightly call out gym creeps who perv on them whilst exercising, but at the same time, reality TV shows put attractive and vain people on tropical islands, they're plied with alcohol and viewers are tantalised with what happens next. Our culture is confused, it is tying itself in knots around sex, we both treat people's bodies as commodities, and we also know people are priceless. This is the world we live in, the world Christians live in, and we feel the pressure. Uh, The world claims its values are normal, and maybe we're the weird ones. But it's not only pressure from the world. We have our own bodies and minds with sexual desires, both godly and sinful, And we have the prowling devil seeking someone to devour. There's all sorts of pressure pushing against godliness. And a strange thing happens when we read the Bible. As much as some of us shake our heads and think the world is getting worse, you open up the Bible and it could have been written yesterday. It's hard to live in God's will, whether it's 2023, 1923, 1723 or 51 AD, when this letter was written. Until Jesus returns, Christians need to hear verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. What does God mean by sexual immorality? What does Jesus say? When Jesus was asked about divorce... He didn't allow himself to get trapped. Uh, The Pharisees thought they had a a tricky question, but Jesus cuts to the heart. He went back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he says everything we need to know about God's will for sex and marriage is there at the start of the Bible. Uh, Have a listen to Jesus. I'll have it up on the screen. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. What does Jesus say about sexual immorality? He gives us the positive side of the coin. God made marriage uh, to be one man and one woman who freely come together in a lifelong joyous loving union. Uh, Sex is for marriage. And so sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of this context and purpose. Uh, Sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of this context and purpose. So God says his people have nothing sexual to do with anyone unless they're their spouse. Anything else is immorality. And also there are ways married people can relate that are immoral. Within a marriage, anything that doesn't reflect the love and respect dynamic of Ephesians 5 is immoral. Within a marriage, pressure or things that make intimacy non-consensual are immoral, as is spitefully withholding affection. That's what we hear at the start of 1 Corinthians 7. But sexual sin doesn't just talk about what we do. Jesus takes things up a notch. Not only is sexual touch, but lustful thoughts are sin. So again, let's listen to Jesus You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust isn't noticing beauty, it's desiring to have. It's consuming someone with your eyes and thoughts. This means that looking at pictures or videos online that stir up desires or watching movies or reading books that entice Jesus says that's sexual immorality. For many of us, this is something we feel we are battling all the time. And maybe it's a battle you more often lose. I'm not only referring to pornography, but they know what sells. So you may not even be looking for it, but images and videos are, are plated up in your Instagram or TikTok feeds. Lascivious stories are highlighted on the news. So what does it mean for you to avoid sexual immorality? Do you need to end an inappropriate relationship? Do you need to delete the app where you swipe left or right? Cancel Netflix. One of the things I do is I run Accountable to You on all my devices. It monitors what I do online and sends a report to Anita and a few Christian friends each week. I use this because I know the world I live in and I know my own sinfulness. Have a chat with me if you want help setting up something like this, if you think it might be helpful for you. So this is what sexual immorality is, but why is it a problem? Why should followers of Jesus avoid it? Why is it sin, especially because we live in a world that says it's not sin. Just do whatever you find satisfaction in. Well, there are many reasons, but in this passage, Paul gives us three reasons. The first is, because of our identity, who God calls us to be. So have a listen again from verse 4. Verse 4, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And then look down to verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Followers of Jesus avoid sexual immorality because that's not who we are. We're not pagans who don't know God. God has called us to be pure and holy, and we've received God's Holy Spirit. Now, those points that Paul makes sounds nice, but what does it mean? Why does God call his people to be pure? Why should Christians live differently from non-believers? It's because, by faith, we are united to Christ and called into God's big story. Uh, The story of God's salvation, of God's people. The story of the Bible starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding. Uh, The Bible starts with a wedding, Eve being brought to Adam in the garden. Uh, Genesis 2.23, it's like a a groom's gushing wedding speech. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The Bible starts with a wedding and the Bible ends with a wedding. The new Jerusalem, which represents all of God's people, the new Jerusalem walks down the aisle, uh, coming down from heaven to eternally be united with the Lord Jesus Uh, Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. The Bible begins and ends with weddings because God's story of salvation is the ultimate romance. Christ is the groom, his people, we are his bride. And this picture isn't just at the start and end of the Bible, it's all the way through the Bible, Salvation is the ultimate love story. God loving his beautiful bride, the bride who's been made beautiful by the work of Jesus on the cross and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So, Christian, when you have control of your body and mind, whether that's through faithful intimacy in marriage or godly chastity in singleness, when we do this, our bodies and minds are proclaiming the infinite value of the gospel to the whole creation. Sex isn't something to experience for your pleasure or self-fulfillment. It tells the story at the heart of the universe. And so the first reason why Christians avoid sexual immorality is because of the gospel, because of who we are in Christ. The second reason is sexual sin hurts others. Verse six, and in this matter, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Uh, This is an illustration I've heard elsewhere. If someone forces you to play a game of table tennis, that'd be weird, but you'd probably get over it. But if someone offends your body in a sexual way, You don't need to be a Christian to know this is a horrific evil. We rightly want the full force of the law thrown at the offender. We know this deep in our core, and the Bible explains why. It's because people are made in God's image. You, your body, is precious. It's not only non-consensual sexual immorality that harms. Adultery harms the spouse you've cheated on. Sex before marriage devalues sex by removing it from the context of promises, exclusivity, and lifelong loving union. Um, Adult entertainment hurts the person on the other side of the screen. Instead of valuing that person as an image bearer, they're nothing more than an object you take advantage of. You are saying God made them for your selfish pleasure. And on top of that, most people involved in those industries, you can barely say that they consented. There's been abuse, trafficking and trauma that's brought them into this. Sexual immorality is wrong because marriage and sex is about the gospel. It's wrong because it harms others. And most terrifyingly, it's to be avoided because God will punish sinners. Verse 6 again, "...the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins." as we told you and warned you before. Friends, this is deadly serious. God will punish sin. Hell awaits unrepentant sinners. Whether your sin is anger or adultery. Now I reckon there might be at least three different ways this part of the Bible might hit us, and it hits us hard, doesn't it? Talking about these things hits us hard. You may be affected by sexual sin in one or more of these ways. Maybe you're here today... And no one knows it, but you are caught in sexual immorality, an inappropriate relationship, hooking up, watching or reading inappropriate things. You need to hear how serious God is about this. And God calls you to repent, to turn and receive his grace. The good news is Jesus died for your sin. Jesus rose again to save you from your sin. God's saving grace is sufficient for you. God's transforming grace is sufficient for you. So go and sin no more. Repentance is first and foremost about turning to God, but it also means confessing to those who've been hurt by your behaviour. And this will be hard. For some reason, it's harder than owning up to God, isn't it? Maybe it's because we know you probably can't undo the damage, but you must own it. Uh, Second, uh, maybe sexual immorality isn't a current issue, but in the past you've sinned this way and you still feel guilt and shame. Brother or sister, Jesus died for your sin. On the cross, your debt was fully paid. If you are united to Christ by faith, you are not guilty. You are clothed in his righteousness. In Christ, you have no disgrace. You are clothed in his honour. Sin covers us with filth, but in Christ, you are a member of his beautiful spotless bride. And finally, if you've been sinned against, if you've been violated by someone else's sin, brother or sister, God sees you. You may feel that you carry shame because of their sin. Jesus knows what it's like to carry shame that doesn't belong to you. On the cross, Jesus was disgraced and ashamed. He knows. He knows. He has taken your shame. He loves you. And it's right to take heart, knowing God will judge those who've harmed you. This part of the Bible touches on a deep and confronting reality. If what I've said so far, brings up something for you. Please talk with me or a mature, trusted Christian brother or sister here at church. Whether it's because you need help to live God's way or you're dealing with the damage done by the sin of others, please find a trustworthy, wise Christian to talk with. From this part of the Bible, God has spoken into our most private behaviour. In the second part of this passage, and I'm going to be much briefer here, we zoom out To our public behaviour. First of all, it's our love for other Christians and we we looked at that last week, so I'm not going to look at it today. So Paul goes on to loving other Christians and also how we approach the world in general. So verse nine. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Uh, When I was in high school, there was a song that was big in the Christian music charts. It was called History Maker. The band was called Delirious. Uh, The chorus begins, I'm going to be a history maker in this land, I'm going to be a speaker of truth to all mankind. This song, it's meant to be inspiring. And it's good. good See that second line? It encourages us to speak the truth about Jesus, but all mankind, every single human being. And on top of that, the expectation is that I, myself, single-handedly, I'm going to change the world. It's meant to be encouraging, but it's exhausting. It's meant to be inspiring, but it's impossible. I'm I'm feeling despondent just reading those words, and that's without all the the string synths behind it. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, God doesn't call you and me to be history makers. God doesn't tell us to change the world. No, God says our ambition should be to live a quiet life, to mind our own business and to work honestly. Um, our culture is obsessed with celebrity and Christian culture sadly is little different. And I have to confess, I feel envious of some of those big name Christians. When I realise that some of those who have written best selling books that are shaping culture, who are invited on podcasts, who are ministers of large churches, they're my age or even younger, it's easy to feel envious. It's tempting then to act in a way that's about building my platform, my fame, rather than living for Jesus. Who are the so-called history makers that you feel envious of? God hasn't asked you to change the world. God will do that. You are not called to stop every injustice or immorality in the world. And with the stuff you see on the news, sometimes you feel that pressure. Everything in the world, every injustice, every sin is my responsibility to fix. No, we're not called to do that. We are called, though, to live passionately and wholeheartedly for Jesus. God is extraordinary. He does amazing things. His plan is to save people uh, from all over the world and, and to make all things new in Jesus. And he will do this extraordinary work through ordinary means. He will transform you and me to be more like Jesus, which is amazing. Think about the pressure we have to not live God's way, and he's actually working against that. And he does it through ordinary things. He does that extraordinary work through ordinary means like church, as we gather with believers to hear his word and sing his praises. God does amazing things like bring sinners from death to life and he does it as ordinary Christians speak about the hope we have in Jesus and live faithfully for him. None of those things sound all that spectacular, but God works in them. We might think maybe, oh, it's those people who are sent cross-culturally on mission. They're pretty extraordinary, aren't they? It's actually not. It's ordinary people doing God's work in quiet ways, but God is powerful. And he saves people and establishes churches all around the world. We underestimate the difference God will make as we do radical countercultural things, like being chaste in singleness and faithful in marriage, as we prioritise gathering as God's people, as we live faithfully for Jesus no matter the pressure, as we work humbly and honestly and speak about Jesus as we go about our days, we underestimate God's power in the ordinary we overestimate the difference individuals can make. We overestimate how changing the world or changing laws or changing culture, we overestimate the difference that makes in people's hearts. We could make the world look a whole lot more just and there'd just be a lot more people, the same number of people, still going to hell. One of the ways this hits the ground for many of us is, what is the dream, what is your dream for your children or grandchildren, what do you consider success to be for them? When they get their report card home from school, how do you gauge whether they've been successful or not? What's your dreams for them? Is it for them to become prime minister or premier, play cricket for Australia, appear on a Forbes top 100 list? Now, in God's providence, some of those things might happen. God sometimes raises his people to do those sorts of things. Think of Esther in the Old Testament, but this must not be our driving ambition. God's ambition is to be ours, to live quiet, humble, faithful lives for Jesus in the relationships and circumstances he's put us in. And it's harder and harder in our culture, isn't it? Because with social media, every one of us thinks we have the opportunity to be a celebrity, to influence the world. But God has not called us to do that. What is God's will for your life? That we live quiet and honest lives. And this is countercultural. As we live as God calls out, we, as, sorry, as God calls us, we will stand out. There will be pressure to conform, but as we live in the strength God provides, God will hold us fast and He, He will change the world. Let's pray. Loving Father, Your word deals with deep and sensitive topics. We thank you that you love us enough to speak about our most personal things and speak about very public things. Please strengthen us to live faithfully for you. Despite the different pressures we feel from the world, our own desires and the evil one, do an amazing miracle and strengthen us to live quiet and holy lives as those who've sinned and who've been sinned against. Open our hearts to deeply know the truth of the gospel, that in Christ, guilt and sin are removed. By faith, we are clothed in his righteousness and honour. And by your spirit, we are being transformed to live for your glory. May our hearts be filled with a godly ambition to live for Jesus' glory, we pray. Amen.